Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for joining us again. Uh, I'd like to remind you up front that if you're digging the show, uh, be sure to give us a rating or a review or a recommendation in your podcast app or at Apple Podcasts. It helps us out a lot, strokes our egos and whatnot. This is episode number 85 of The Next Track, and it's brought to you by Econ Technologies, the makers of Chronosync Backup and Sync Software. I'll be able to tell you some more about Chronosync a little later on in the program, as well as uh, we'll have a special discount offer for you, too. Meanwhile, today we wanted to talk about the piles of music files we've been accumulating over the years. How many tracks are in your iTunes library, Doug? Well, I've actually got two libraries. I've got a main library that I use all the time, and I've got one that I've I've, I've used to back up stuff that I don't use. My main library is just under 50,000 tracks, and this backup library that has mostly production music and sound effects and things like that, it's just about 20,000 or so. Yeah, my main library is about 65,000, um, and my second library is about 80 or 90,000. I just removed about 5,000 tracks from the main library. And I do this every now and then. I go through my library and say, well, I haven't listened to this in years, and I won't be listening to it. But recently, my attitude toward this has been changing because as, as we both discussed that we're using Apple Music more and more, do I really need all those recordings of the Mahler symphonies and the Beethoven piano sonatas and everything else that I have? Well, if you don't listen to them, I think the argument would be that just if you want to keep them, you hold on to them, but you just kind of put them out of the way and, and just, I mean, that's what I would do. But on the other hand... I kind of like having all that stuff around. Right. And I I'm going through the same thing you are. Yeah. I, I want that stuff available just in case I feel like listening to some obscure recording that I, you know, will have a sudden urge to listen to. And, and if they're in a second library, you don't have the reminder of when you're browsing or maybe you're using one of your great Apple scripts to play random albums. We'll put a link in the show notes because I really like that script. If it's not there, what's the expression? Out of sight, out of mind. Well, I've ripped pretty much my entire CD collection into iTunes. And then, of course, I've moved the CD collection into the closet where it is literally out of sight. But every so often I'll find in my iTunes collection that I didn't rip a CD and I have to go in and rip it because I want everything at my fingertips. I've got to have it all right there. So it's not enough just to own it and have it somewhere in the house. It actually has to be within listenable reach. <laughs> but we've been doing this for years. Yeah. And, and if you look at it, we both started back in the vinyl days each of us had our own interests and we would seek out different recordings and singles and EPs and albums and we would collect. And And I don't think either of us was ever a truly obsessive collector. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article I wrote a couple of years ago about collecting music and particularly this period when I was into the English music, we've discussed many times the Manchester scene and all that. I would go looking for, you know, I'd see in the New Musical Express that there was a new single by this band and I'd want to hear it because you couldn't get it on the radio. But I never went to the whole completest thing where I had to have every actual version of everything. Having um, a, a nice record collection is something I inherited from my father because he he actually built furniture in the house to store his record collection. And it wasn't a very large collection, but it was diverse. And he, you know, he this is the music that he liked to listen to. And he took very good care of it. And I, th I guess that rubbed off on me because, well, if you like music, then you have a lot of music. That's You, you collect this, you have this in case you ever want to refer to it. And I, I noticed growing up too, a lot of my friends were the same sort of way. Their parents would have 
fairly large record collections, and so they did also. I mean, it's the sort of thing where if you're in a musical family, makes great Christmas gifts, makes great birthday gifts. This music is just, you know, you, you're bred to be acquisitive. Back in the day, when we were, before you were in radio, and when I was, was just listening to music and buying albums, we couldn't have that much music because A, we didn't have that much money, B, there, there wasn't that much music you could buy. And the standard unit of measure for a record collection was milk crates. And I don't think I ever had more than two milk crates of albums back in that day. Yeah, that sounds about right. Two milk crates. I actually had a fruit crate, but it was the equivalent of two milk crates. But yeah, yeah, I think that's about right. <laughs> and and that's about what? I'm, I'm guessing you get 60, 70 albums in a milk crate, 50 maybe, depending if they're double albums. So w we went through this period of many years with owning, what, 100 albums. Now, I knew this guy, Stu. He worked in a record store. He had these custom-made shelves like you're talking about. And I remember one night at his house, he was talking about rearranging them, just like in that movie High Fidelity, when the guy was talking about rearranging them. And he must have had about 10 or 12 milk crates worth of shelving space. And, and that was, you know, really a huge collection back then. But if you look at that as 600 albums, right, 6,000 tracks, that's just, that's nothing today. Yeah, nowadays with, with digital downloads, um, a 6,000 song library isn't that big, not really that impressive. At the opposite end of the spectrum back in the day, when I met my wife, I think she had about 20 LPs and maybe a handful of cassettes. So, you know, as a casual listener, she wasn't interested in accumulating all this stuff uh, in the same way we were. Yes. Well, first of all, it's a male-female thing. I've never met that many females who are interested in collecting records or collecting a lot of different things. I think, you know, the collection bug hits men and women in different ways. But someone at Apple told me a couple of years ago that the average iTunes library was around 3,000 tracks. Now, that's, that's already 300 albums, which is a lot if you think about it. And what that means is that a lot of people were maybe buying albums, uh, assuming that these were people who were only buying digital music. The average, remember, this is a bell curve. We're at one end, and the people who don't have anything are at the other end. People would buy an album or two, and then they'd get a lot of free singles, and then they'd rip some CDs, and maybe a friend would give them some stuff that they had ripped or downloaded. So even 3,000 tracks, to me, sounds like a lot. And it sounds like that average is skewed by the percentage of people who have large libraries. And, and I'd love to have some statistics on that from Apple to know, you know, have a better breakdown. You know, what percentage of people have 20,000 or 50,000 or 100,000 tracks? It's interesting that the original campaign for the iPod was 1,000 songs in your pocket, which was really remarkable, considering that you could walk around and have a thousand songs that you could listen to whenever you wanted to. When I worked at a classic rock station, we did an annual uh, promotion called Classic Rock A to Z. And we would play every song in our massive classic rock library back-to-back uh, -back until we're done. And it, I can tell you right now, it took a week because it was a promotion and it was a setup. But if you consider that a radio station can play 12 songs an hour, about 140 songs a day, for seven days, that's about a thousand songs. And that's... That's the most any radio station is ever going to have, um, with the exception of, like, very eclectic formats. But, I mean, your standard classic rock, country, adult alternative, you're going to hear, you know, at 
at best about 500 songs because of that original 1,000. They're rotated in and out depending on how the testing goes and how much new music comes in, that sort of thing. But it's really amazing that a radio station will only, you'll only ever hear about 1,000 songs. So everything did change with digital because already 1,000 songs in your pocket was assuming that people had 1,000 songs, which is roughly the equivalent of 100 albums. I, I remember back in the day, I didn't have the very first iPod. I had the second, I think. The idea of filling up an iPod, even then, my first one would have been the 20 gigabyte model. The first, the original iPod was five, and then I think the second one was 20 and 40. And it was like 20 gigabytes. Wow, I can't even fill this up. Of course, we were ripping at a lower bit rate, but still, 20 well, gigabytes. And it's also easier to accumulate digital music because you don't have the, the physical size constraints of LPs or CDs. I mean, if you've got enough room on your computer, you can have... You could have a lot of files, so it became easier to to get these things either through well, in the, back in the day, d ravaging through Napster to get stuff, or borrowing friends' CDs or that sort of thing. It was fairly easy to develop a a large collection without having to have the space for it uh, in your in your house. Yeah, so now we have access to forty million tracks on Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal. I'm pretty sure they all have about the same numbers, and and that's really changed things because. Just before the show started, you used the word hoarding when we were talking about this, and I never really saw it as hoarding, and I'm sure there were some people who, who would just torrent everything they could and download everything they could just to make sure they had it. And there was a period when I downloaded as many Grateful Dead concerts as I could just to be able to have them, because I had these books, the Deadheads Taping Compendium, and there were three volumes of it. The first one was 1959 to 1974, the second one was 1975 to 1985, and since I didn't like the sort of late 80s, 90s Grateful Dead, I never bought the third one. But I was going through these. This was when I started trading Grateful Dead concerts, and I was going through these to find the concerts that were best. So I would read through a year and say, okay, this one they say is really great, and it's got a great version of Dark Star and all that, and I'd have these downloads, and I'd go to listen to them. Obviously, I haven't listened to most of these downloaded bootlegs in a long time, in part because the Grateful Dead have released so many official live recordings of much better quality, and we've talked about them in a couple of shows here, links in the show notes. If I look at my iTunes library right now, I have 4,800 tracks by the Grateful Dead. This doesn't count the Jerry Garcia band and Bob Weir's solo stuff and Olden in the Way and things like that. 4,800 tracks, which is already five original iPods worth of music, and obviously it takes up a lot more space because it's all ripped at a higher bitrate. I remember there used to be arguments in forum posts and things like that from between the people who collected a lot of music and completists, such as yourself, yep. and people who couldn't understand why you couldn't just settle on a few hundred tracks. And they would do the math and say, look, if you have 5,000 albums and each of them has an average of 12 tracks that are an average of four minutes, it's going to take you 187 years or whatever they worked it out to be to listen to all of this. And listening to the music isn't the point of collecting it. No. It's about, it's about having it. In, in the back of your mind, you may think, I will listen to this, but it's really about being a completist, about being able to, um, if you need to go back and listen to that particular Grateful Dead concert, or if you need to go back and listen to that, that rare Clash single, you know, you've got it. And there's something, there's some emotional thing that goes on about having, possessing all of them. But it's also an outgrowth, I think, of the curiosity that we have about the music that we like to listen to. We want to know every little nuance 
about how things were recorded. What, you know, why is this album sound different than this album? Why is the production on this album different? Why is the songwriting different? How has it matured? How has it grown? Um, that's the sort of thing that we're interested in, in following. It's not about accumulating a lot of music. That's just happens to be what happens. You just want to be able to have this stuff. I can't explain it any better than that. <laughs> well, here's a good example. I'm not a huge jazz fan, but I love Miles Davis and I love Bill Evans. And a few years ago, Columbia, Sony started releasing these sets of Miles Davis recordings, which were not just the albums that were released, but the original cuts that were recorded. And there you get this wealth of music. And, and this isn't like outtakes. This is full takes that were almost as good as the ones that were released, sometimes better, maybe too long. You take an album like Bitches Brew, which was a double LP, not very long, maybe 30, 35 minutes on each side, and you end up with three hours of material from the different sessions around that period. Some of the music that was unreleased was better than some of the music that had been released. Or, or the Bob Dylan bootleg series. Dylan, for some reason has left out some of his best songs on his studio albums in, in this century, for the most part. And some of these bootleg releases contain outtakes and, and different versions of songs that are really extraordinary. So once you start getting these bits of music by someone you like, you want to keep getting more because there's always more. And of course, you're never going to listen to all of it. You may just needle drop a couple of songs here and there just to compare. Um, I've done the same thing with, with, with lots of albums. A lot of the albums that I like have been reissued, and they, every time they're reissued, they contain more and more and more stuff, outtakes and recuts and, and rearrange things and remix things. And you, you kind of, like I said, you kind of want to have all of those to compare, to get an idea of what the heck the musician was thinking about. You know, you get a better idea of their parameters and what they wanted to work with then. So it's that's really what it's about i think it's like i said it's not a race to have a, a bigger stack of records it's just it's your involvement and your emotional attachment to the music in in some cases these extra tracks and extra versions aren't that great and i'm thinking of the um set that yes released a few years ago uh, yes's most popular album um was yes songs um which was a live album recorded in 72 or 73 they took the songs on the album from seven different concerts that they had recorded, and they released a couple of years ago a box set of the full seven different concerts. It's exactly the same set list. Some of the songs are the exact same length to the second. They sound almost exactly alike. Maybe the guitar solos are a little bit different. And I remember checking out on a forum, and Yes fans were talking about this, and they were saying, oh, but like the banter in between the songs is different and all. And I just couldn't stop laughing because... You know, on the one hand, you, you hear the Grateful Dead play Dark Star, and it truly is different every time, but the banter between the songs. I mean, it's there. It depends how where your obsession lies. If I mean, if it's if you find the personalities of the musicians interesting, then the only clue you're going to get about their personality is when they speak. I, I think I mentioned in the last episode, I was talking about um, about remastering a, a, a Who live album to edit out Pete Townsend's stage bantering. But even so... The fact that I, I have heard him speak and say things about the music informs me about how he feels about the music. Let's just pause here so I can talk a little about this week's sponsor, Chronosync. So whether it's your media collection or other important files, having a backup strategy is not only key to surviving data loss or damage, but also keeping your sanity. 
should that kind of tragedy ever occur at your house. Next Track listeners know that we talk about backing up all the time, and that's why we'd like to recommend Chronosync, the backup and sync software from Econ Technologies. Chronosync allows you to easily set up various scheduling tasks. You don't have to back up everything all at once to just one place. Now, Chronosync uses creation assistants that already have some common backup and folder sync tasks to choose from. Backup just the home folder, sync from this folder to that folder, this volume to that volume. Frankly, for most people, they're all you're going to need. But you can create your own specific backup or sync schedules too. For instance, Kirk uses it to sync video files from his main iMac to the Plex server on his Mac Mini, which is in some closet somewhere. Chronosync can sync or backup to and from any device that can be mounted on your Mac. Now, one of the things I really admire about the developers of Chronosync is that they've got this old-fashioned idea that you should try out software before you buy it. So, you can download a full-featured 15-day trial of Chronosync to see how it can work with your workflow. It's a great way to check out all of Chronosync's features, including drive cloning, bootable backup creation, cloud backup. So listen, because you're a Next Track listener, when you do decide to purchase Chronosync, because I think you will, you can save 25%. Now here's all you do. Go to this episode's page at thenexttrack.com. This is episode number 85. And click the link there that takes you to the Chronosync page, and the 25% savings will be yours. Whatever your backup or sync scenario, Chronosync has got you covered. Download the full-featured 15-day trial of Chronosync today at econtechnologies.com. And we thank them for being a sponsor of The Next Track. And we're talking about how much music is too much and why we acquire these big music libraries. So one genre which particularly lends itself to this is classical music. And I'll link to an article I wrote called Searching for the Perfect Recording. And I wrote about how I wanted to listen to a Schubert piano sonata. And I wasn't sure which one, because at the time that I wrote this, I had 22 different versions of this sonata. It's Schubert's crowning uh, piece of work for piano. And different pianists play it very differently on different pianos, which gives it a different sound. The, the point of my article was not so much to say that there is such thing as a perfect recording, but that the process of comparing recordings and listening to them is, is extremely interesting. So what's happened in the past 10 or 15 years is that we've seen these classical box sets come out initially at relatively high prices, but now they're between a buck or two per disc. So you can get, you know, a set of a hundred CDs of your favorite artist or composer or whatever, and it's maybe $200 at most, you know, when you're a classical music fan and you're used to comparing versions and you really like this pianist and this conductor, it's almost a no-brainer to say, well, okay, Leonard Bernstein has performed and recorded all these things, and I know his Sibelius and I know his Mahler and Beethoven, but I don't know this Tchaikovsky and I don't know his Rachmaninoff or whatever. And it's very tempting to buy these box sets. And naturally, you don't listen to that much. But you can justify it saying that, well, this $200 box set, there are maybe six or seven CDs that I'm really going to listen to. And that's what you would have paid for those six or seven CDs 15 years ago anyway. So you've got all the extra stuff. Of course, this leads to the problem of do you rip it all and put it in your library? And we know how long that takes. I've gotten to the point now where, A, I really don't buy any more box sets. And B, I don't even rip the last dozen or so that I bought because it's just too time consuming. That's an interesting thing. You know, we were talking about, again, I'll reference our last episode. Um, we were talking about how in the old days, if you wanted to record something, you had to do it in real time. And then came digital and we could rip a CD in a, in a matter of minutes. And now even doing that 
is too cumbersome a chore. Uh, we just immediately jump to the uh, streaming uh, to you know to see if it's there. Well, no, I'll, I'll disagree with you. The chore itself isn't the ripping; it's the tagging because of the problem with getting classical music tags right. If I was ripping fifty Grateful Dead CDs, I would put the CDs in, let iTunes rip them and spit them out. Put the next one in. I would spell check afterwards, and I, I would know that the tagging is more or less correct. But with classical music, it's such a mess that it's really, it's really a big job. But in any case, it the job in order to get the stuff from disc into your library, there is a certain amount of manual labor you have to do that you would prefer not to do. This is true. I will confess to at least once torrenting a box set that I had bought just so I didn't have to rip the discs. And do the tagging. Or would you still do the tagging? Well, I still had to do the tagging. Still do the tagging because the tagging's not the way I want it. But it's just to, to save the time ripping the discs. That's an interesting thing. There are behaviors that are attached to a large record collection. And one of those behaviors is the housekeeping. The consistency of the tagging. Well, not only that, but there's a thrill and there's a joy in working with tagging, with rearranging the collection. For instance, if you had an LP collection, like you mentioned in High Fidelity, it's like, well, I think I'm going to arrange my, my record collection by genres this weekend. I'm going to spend the weekend rearranging things by artist. And, and, and that happens in iTunes too. People tend to do things like that, uh, you know, rearrange things, do the housekeeping. And that's a certain, that's thrilling <laughs> in a certain way. That's a fun thing to do with your music. That's another way of enjoying your music. You don't have to listen to it, but managing your collection is a fun thing to do. Look at Discogs, for example. People take great pride in uh, creating their accounts and their and their lists of, of their music and that sort of thing. And, and look at that. That's turned into a business. Now people can buy and sell each other's records. So there's a certain that that activity is, is, is an adjunct to the collection, but it seems to be an important part of it. Yeah, Discogs tends toward almost the stamp collecting thing that you want to get the one with the certain text in the runout groove was only in this pressing that was made in this factory in Germany or whatever. It gets a little bit obsessive. Using classical music as an example, I want to look at an extreme case. I know a guy, his name is Steve. He's a classical music fan, and I reached out to him this week, and I asked him how much music he has in his library. So I'm going to read some comments that he sent me on Facebook, and I think this is actually quite interesting. So he says, hi, Kirk, interesting question. With Spotify and Apple Music that I may soon switch to, it does pose the question as to why I keep buying physical media, especially as I rip everything and never go back to the physical unless I need to read notes. Makes a lot of sense, right? Then we come to the numbers. Are you ready for this? Steve says, now I have 482,000 items, 7.5 terabytes and probably a terabyte to add to it. Now, you and I were in touch with a lot of people who have a lot of music and 100,000, even 200,000 is not unheard of. But this, to me, is the Everest of a classical music collection. That is a very large collection. As you say, I I think the largest collection I've ever run across that someone had was about 200, 250,000. I can't imagine how iTunes manages much more than that without choking on itself, um, especially if you create lots of playlists and things like that. Um, just as an aside to this, I chatted with a guy a couple of years ago. I was working with him. He was trying to get his playlist from one library into another. He had, and I can't believe this is the right number, but the, I, and I tried to find my email correspondence with him and I couldn't, but he had easily 20,000 playlists. He had each album was in a playlist. Each album in a playlist. And yeah. each, each album was in an artist playlist folder and each artist playlist was in a genre playlist folder. So he had these 
a very complicated database structure. Cascading playlists. Yes. And he it just it brought iTunes to a standstill. Now that's probably because he just had too many playlists. If he'd gotten rid of all the playlists and used the the browser bar, he probably would have been better off. But he insisted that this was part of his this was part of his routine, putting things into playlists and organizing things. That was part of the thrill. Well, I'm not sure which version of iTunes it was. Was it 9 when they changed the database structure? And, and the database file itself shrunk drastically. Because I remember previous to that, I had been telling people in my articles and books, you know, when you get to about 30 or 50,000 tracks, iTunes gets really slow. And all of a sudden, with this new version, it got a lot faster. And I was upward of 100,000 at some point, and I never had a problem. So I think we've gotten to the point where iTunes can manage a much larger library than before. Yeah, I'm not sure if they updated the software they use for the database, which I think is a version of, I think it's a, a homebrew of uh, SQLite or something. But they made it much more efficient uh, at that time. And it's been about the same ever since, really. But still, you, it, there's got to be a limit where you know the database is just going to crash when it tries to update the the ui it's just it's there's got to be a point where that's going to break so i, I want to read some more of steve's comments because it's interesting he describes mm. how and why he got to this point and thank you very much steve for giving us this information and allowing me to quote this he says i think the genesis of this is that i started working in a classical radio station when i was 12 years old until I was about 30 years old, that was my life virtually every day. So this is his version of the high fidelity thing, radio station instead of a, a record store. He says, the record library was my zone, and I knew it like the back of my hand. I also thought like a radio programmer, and that still sticks with me. I buy these complete box sets by artists I barely know because someone I trust tells me they're worthwhile. He mentions Paul Bedoroskota, who is, I believe, an Austrian pianist, that he recently discovered, um, he's recorded a lot of Schubert and very good Schubert recordings. And Deutsche Grammophon recently released a box set. So he bought it right away and he says, I haven't played any, but there's this warm and fuzzy feeling knowing that I have them in my library that someday I will play them maybe in my retirement. Now he goes on to talk about his brother who was forced to retire early due to a disability. And he says he was a huge collector like myself, but for financial reasons, he needed to sell most of his collection. He has adapted to Spotify as pretty much his only source of recordings. In retirement, he explores much more new repertoire and artists than he did when working. He pours through each copy of Gramophone magazine and he looks for the CDs that are mentioned on Spotify. Now, that's interesting because I think that when you're wedded to your own music library, you have a kind of, it's, it's as if you have blinders on and you don't look too far outside of it. And this is really valuable because you do have this music and you want to get to know it and you want to play it more than once. Because after all, if you're buying records just to listen to them once, that's a bit excessive. But the ability now to go, and, and as, as Steve says, his brother goes through Gramophone Magazine, which is a magazine that reviews a couple hundred classical records every month and gives you plenty of options. Why bother to buy them? Because you may be disappointed. You may listen to them once or twice. Having a streaming service, I, I thought of this analogy the other day. It's like having an apartment right next door to the record store. And the owner of the record store says, here's the keys to the record store. Whenever you want to come in and listen to something, be my guest. And so you have, when you have a streaming service, the only thing different as far as I'm concerned is the stuff just isn't at my house. But because I'm getting more integrated with these streaming services... I don't mind that the music isn't here. I don't mind that I don't have to deal with the information. I don't, I don't mind that. And it's really easy to find obscure things that 
may just enter your head or maybe you see mentioned in it, like you say, in Gramophone or Rolling Stone or, or someplace mentioned, you can very quickly go and find it and listen to it. So the convenience of having access to all of this music without having to store it yourself, I, I think is an advantage. It took me a long time to evolve to that, though. Yeah, the thing is there are exceptions. There are still some labels that don't stream. We saw that ECM moved to streaming recently, but Hyperion Records, one of the great independent classical labels, doesn't stream. The Grateful Dead releases a number of live recordings that are available in limited editions, and they don't get to streaming. The Dave's Pick series is, is the current one. The big box sets, the Grateful Dead releases, you know, like the Europe 72 or, or the 50th anniversary set, none of these are streamable. So you're not going to get everything. And if you still want to buy some stuff, you buy the things that you know won't stream. Some artists simply don't do it. In fact, my, my next track selection at the end of the show will be by an artist who has some music streaming, but very little, and releases, in many cases, limited editions of CDs. So it, it's hard to make that balance. On the one hand, I could probably find 98% of the music I want to listen to. Let's say 95 if I factor in The Grateful Dead. But most of what I want to listen to, I could find on Apple Music or Spotify or any of the other services. But one of the things that's holding me back, and I think holding you back, is the fact that I will not mix my personal library up with the Apple Music library because of all the mess that that causes, the iCloud Music library. So I can't go 100% into that mode because I don't trust what Apple's going to do to my music. Well, what I do is I just don't add anything, and I primarily just want to hear the album. And once I've heard it, I don't need to hear it again for another two or three years. You know, I mean, if there's a Frank Sinatra album that somebody says I should listen to, I'll just pop on Apple Music and listen to it. I don't need to have it, but I kind of do have it because it's it's right there in Apple Music. So, you know, it's it's not a matter of possessing it anymore. It's just a matter of, oh, I have access to it. I can appreciate it for the amount of time that I'm going to. I'm not 14 years old anymore. I don't listen to albums over and over and over and over again. Um, it's now a matter of, of, of broadening my horizons and, and finding lots of different interesting music or music that I'm already interested in or new releases of things. Um, there's People are constantly finding recordings that were never released and now releasing them. That You see that quite frequently. Well, we haven't discovered anything new, but it's obvious that this change is really affecting the music industry. And, and I think the biggest difference now is... You know, for a few years, the streaming was affecting the music industry of the casual record buyer. But now it's starting to have an effect on the music collector. I mean, Steve, with 482,000 tracks, is probably going to stop buying records. I've more or less stopped buying records, except for a, a few occasional things. Uh, I'm reminded of a quote from Klaus Heyman, who's the head of Naxos Records. And he once said, there's pretty much a consensus in the industry that there's maybe a million classical music collectors in the world when you define a collector as someone who buys at least 10 CDs a year. Now, what's going to happen when half of those million people don't buy those 10 CDs a year? And, well, that's, you know, 5 million CDs that aren't being sold. The classical music market is already relatively small compared to the pop market. You're still going to have obsessives. And again, this is from the article I wrote, Searching for the Perfect Recording. I asked some fellow classical music fans who have like multiple copies of different works. I mentioned I have 22. I had 22 recordings of this Schubert Sonata when I wrote this article. I have a few more now. I have about 25 of Bach's Goldberg variations. And one person, he said that he had 60 recordings of Debussy's Etudes. Another person, he said he had 139 recordings of Bruckner's Fourth Symphony. 
One person admitted to having 150 recordings of Vidor's Fifth Organ Symphony, and one said he has about 250 recordings of Wagner's Die Valkyrie. 250 recordings of one opera. That's a big opera. That's that's a three-disc opera. Yeah. So I understand the interest in different versions of things, particularly if you're a musician, where you may appreciate it differently than the average person. But that gets to the point of just, you know, obsessive collecting. I, I think some of the people, I'm not judging any of you people out there, if you're listening and you've got your 250 Wagner recordings, I'm not judging you. But I think what happens is once you get started down that path, it's almost impossible to stop. If you've got every single recording of a work and another one comes out, you can't not buy it. Well, you've kind of got the same thing with the the Grateful Dead collecting and the Bob Dylan collecting. I'm always trying to fill in holes in my collection. In fact, it's 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 very much like the anxiety you'd get if you looked at a jigsaw puzzle that wasn't finished. You want to complete it. And that's that's sort of how I feel about collecting music now. Well, the Grateful Dead thing is a little bit different. So I'm holding up to you. Dave's Picks number 24, which I received a few weeks ago, and I haven't actually opened it yet. They release one of these every three months. So I, I buy a subscription in November for the following year, and every three months it's like, oh, a new Grateful Dead package. It's not, it's not a question of me going out and seeking them so much anymore. And once a year they'll release a big box set, and I may or may not buy it, depending on which period it covers. But it's more to have this, it's like a Cheese of the Month Club thing. <laughs> cheese of the Month Club? There actually was such a thing. It was called the Columbia House Record Club. <laughs> <laughs> We're about to present our next tracks, and once again we want to thank Econ Technologies, the makers of ChronoSync Backup and Sync Software, for sponsoring this episode. You can download the full-featured 15-day trial of ChronoSync and you should do it today at econtechnologies.com and then save 25% on ChronoSync by going to the episode number 85 page at thenexttrack.com and click the link that takes you to the ChronoSync website. All right, Kirk, what's your next track? So I mentioned during the show that there are some musicians whose music I buy regularly because I just like them and because in, in a way it's supporting these indie musicians that I've been listening to for years. And one of them is Bill Nelson. And I picked one of his albums as a next track some months ago and just Today, I bought two new albums that he released on Bandcamp. It's called Rosewood Volume 1 and Rosewood Volume 2. He describes these as acoustic guitar pieces in an ambient soundscape that suggests a jazz and contemporary classical context, as well as a broader neo-roots music vibe. Well, someone's got a new marketing person because that's got a whole bunch of buzzwords in it. I actually was only able to listen to one track of the first album before Doug called me to start the podcast. And it kind of reminds me of that early Pat Metheny acoustic music. It's mellow, it's chill, it's got nice arrangements, there's a nice overall sound. It's not just a guitar, there's other instruments. And, uh, you know, Bill Nelson is an acquired taste, but if you really get into him, you'll like a lot of what he's recorded. And he, he releases a number of CDs every year. They're limited to 500 copies. He's basically a journeyman indie musician in his 60s who's making a living off a small group of fans. And I've liked his music for long enough that I'm willing to, you know, contribute to that and, and spend 50, 60 pounds a year on his records. So this is called Rosewood Volume 1 and 2. I'll link to this on Bandcamp. This is only available by download. These are actually two CDs that were limited edition CDs he released in 2005, and they're now available by download for the first time. Doug, what are you listening to? Well, uh, my pick isn't necessarily earth-shattering, but it, it was kind of fun to discover. Um, back in the 1980s, there was a band from Australia called Pseudo Echo. Uh, they were like a synth-pop band. They kind of, 
Well, they were a synth pop band. What more needs to be said? They had a, a big hit that I recall in 1987. It was a cover of Sheik's Funky Town. And I've had the version of that for years, but I don't have any of their albums. It was just that single that I have. Well, I'm looking at Apple Music the other day and I'm um, going through my new music mix and there's Pseudo Echo in there with a new version of Nutbush City Limits. Uh, it's a single. It's not uh, attached to any album. And so I listened to that and it's actually pretty good. Now, Nutbush City Limits is a song written by Bob Seger for Tina Turner. She did it on an early solo album and I think Bob Seger also recorded it. It's about Tina Turner's hometown, Nutbush. It's a really great song and Pseudo Echo does a fabulous job um, doing a cover of it. The thing about Pseudo Echo is they still sound like it's 1987, and they've even borrowed a few sounds. There's some Midge-Ur guitar in there, and the, there's some very uh, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, Human League sounds in there. So it was a lot of fun to hear the song. But then I saw that they have a live album that they recorded somewhere in 2015 called Live at the Viper Room. I don't know if there is such a place. I mean, I've, I've needle-dropped the album a little bit, and it... Sounds a little manufactured, if you know what I mean. Some of the applause sounds like it came from someplace else. But even so, I'm going to give it a listen because they've managed to be frozen in time <laughs> to have this uh, late 80s British synth pop and I guess Australian synth pop uh, sound and still have maintained it. And of course, they do a live version of Funky Town, so I want to hear that. So, Pseudo Echo, Live at the Viper Room, is my next track. This has been the next track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.